Hello everyone, it's October 27th, 2020. This week we're talking about the Osiris Rex Tag Sam Snag. It kind of reminds me of Hungry Hippos when one of the marbles would get stuck in the hippo's mouth and it would get stuck open. Okay, yes, I'm bad with analogies. Let's just talk about the real thing. And lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 282 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. I was just going to mention that SpaceX has apparently had its 100th successful flight, which kind of surprised me because uh-huh. I thought it was more than that, but I lost track a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, so. it, that's including their four uh, Falcon 1 launches. So we're going to come mm-hmm. up on the 100th Falcon 9 launch in a little bit, and that'll be more exciting, I think. Yeah, but still, that's a nice little milestone. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, and uh, St- Stein in the chat has uh, the topic that I wanted to get to, but... <laughs> <laughs> the topic that you and everyone else on the planet, but all right, yeah, why don't you go ahead and talk about that? Well, okay, so we we had uh, a little uh, Among Us get together this week, and it was, I mean, I was expecting it to be fun. It was more fun than I thought. So we're going to try to do this uh, fairly regularly um, because it's like no setup, right? It's <laughs> something easy you can jump in and jump out of. Um, you can join us for, you know, one game and the rounds take what, maybe five or 10 minutes. If even, I'm, I'm pretty sure I won around in like 90 seconds at one time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we had, brag we a had little. What? <laughs> yeah, we had, we had five people playing. Um, and that's, that's a really, really small party. So that, that went pretty quick. If we get more people, they'll take a little longer, but, mm-hmm. um, anyway, um, our Discord is open. There's a link on Twitter and Reddit. It's a temporary link, so you'll have to click through the invite every time you close Discord. And so uh, I think what I'm going to do is start tweeting our proposed uh, playtimes, um, and then you can jump into our Discord, and there will be um, link or uh, uh, the the invite code, the room code in there, and then you can come play with us. It's really fun. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's it's like five dollars uh, if you buy it on PC. It's free if you buy it or if you get the uh, the iOS or Android app. And it's yeah, it's a lot of fun. We're not going to try too hard to convince um, David to come play with us because it's mm-hmm. not his kind of thing. I feel like the only person who's too lazy to play games, but I know that that's not <laughs> what it actually is. It's more like I'm just it's just it's just not something that I habitually do, and so it seems like a lot of work. You know, mm-hmm. um, I do enjoy the role playing games. Those few games that we played in the past, which is like my first time doing so in just about my whole life. And those are fun. You know, I mean, they're a little bit crazy, but uh, I do like it. So I do like the straight up RPG thing. I guess I'm kind of old school in that way. And I didn't even know it. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's fun, actually. Mm-hmm. This is actually a little RPG because the only rules that exist are the ones that, you know, you kind of come to as a as a party you know and and mm-hmm. discussing mm-hmm. who's who's the imposter so yeah I know. And, and i guess also to be clear for you know anyone who's just unfamiliar with it it's it's basically just a a fun uh video game based you know or you know uh, phone based uh version of that kind of classic you know party game where you know some uh imposters or i think it was called mafia when i played it back in college you know like mm-hmm. one of those games where you got some bad guy among you and you don't know werewolves is another version yeah yeah and you don't know which is the bad person and you got to kind of you know uh, figure out as a group you know how you're gonna basically approach that while the uh the bad guys trying to do their deviousness, I guess. <laughs> and so there, there's a lot, I mean, there, there is some really deep strategy that you can get into, but ultimately, you know, you're just characters running around trying to fix up a ship before time runs out. And the time running out is everybody getting killed off. Like that, mm. that's all it comes <laughs> down to. Um, and it, it, 
it feels really well balanced. And if you need to tweak the balance, you can change some of the some of the gameplay mechanics to make it easier or harder for the imposter. And it I don't know, it's it's a lot of fun. Um, so we we played once this week. We're gonna uh, play again um, Friday night at 2 p.m. Pacific. 5 p.m. Eastern this Friday. If you want to join us, um, we're going to try to mix up the day of the week that we play probably, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, um, just so that, you know, anybody who has locked in commitments can actually uh, make it every once in a while. But this week we're going to stay with Friday. We played Friday last week. We're going to play Friday this week again, because Saturday is uh, Halloween. That doesn't seem like a good time to, <laughs> to schedule anything <laughs> that we expect anybody to be able to actually show up for um, so c- come play with us on Friday. Yeah, uh, links will all be on Twitter. Osiris Rex completes tag. So uh, the little bump, or what's it called? The touch and go, the bump and go, something or other. Mm, yeah. <laughs> of uh, the asteroid Bennu. That was successful, but, you know, there was maybe a slight snag. I think, as one mission specialist said, uh, they are a victim of their own success, so <laughs> we'll get into exactly what that means, because I guess this was an operation uh, that went so well that they got a little bit more than they bargained for, so <laughs> that's how I'll describe that. Yeah, so so the this is a this is a sampling of an asteroid, and so the tag maneuver in particular is uh, their method of sampling involves, you know, it's got this long arm, um, with a little uh, collector at the end that's called Tag Sam or the Touch and Go Sampler. And um, ultimately, you know, it, it contacts the surface. Uh, it's got a little bit of a, a give to it. And so it's kind of like a pogo stick it's been described as. And um, once it makes contact, it basically blasts uh, some nitrogen uh, gas into the regolith, which obviously, you know, disturbs it and kicks it up. We're in milligravity here. And so, you know, uh, it, it looked like a boom. I did not think it was going to be quite so violent when I actually saw the sampling uh, video afterwards. But um, unlike Hayabusa 2, where the actual samples kind of would then just kind of drift up the uh, horn, the the, the collector um, uh, arm, so to speak, and then go and get uh, collect up uh, near the space spacecraft bus itself in this case the sampling all takes place down at the uh, the edge or the uh, head of the whole tag sam um uh, arm and head it's it's like the difference between one of those vacuums where you've got the um all the mechanics up in the handheld portion and a really long stem that actually touches the ground versus a Roomba. You know, that's kind of <laughs> that's kind of the difference here perfect way to put it so what what i think is really cool about Tag Sam is that it was designed for a very large range of conditions. Um, we didn't know what Bennu was going to look like. We didn't know if it was going to be this really loose um, rubble pile. What they call it, like a fairy? What was the description of the loosest version? Like a fairy house or something like that? Oh well, yeah, <laughs> I think like a fairy castle or something. Fairy castle. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, like just just real loose rubble, or you know, like a concrete hard ball you know we we Mm -hmm. just didn't know what we were going to see and so tag sam had to deal with you know this super wide range of possibilities and we wound up with something in the middle but closer to the fairy castle end right and so it's it's really cool to see preparing for the worst and and getting something a a lot better and that's kind of what you were talking about when you said uh a bit off more than they could chew right uh david yeah 
And one thing that Dennis said, he said, I, I think you said that you didn't think it was going to be like that violent of an impact or something. I can't remember. Oh, that, that violent of a sneeze, right? <laughs> of a sneeze, yeah. But I'm wondering, because we had talked about this before with a previous sample mission, is that what it actually, I mean, that's not what it actually looked like. We're looking at something that's happening much more slowly and it's mm-hmm. just, you know, a handful of frames that, that have been, you know, excel- not accelerated, but yeah. So it's, mm. it's, it's, it's not really happening quite so violently as it looks. It's all like if you slow that down a hundred times, that's probably more what it looks like. That's a good point, yeah. I think it's pretty limited transmission back to Earth, so they have to just take, you know, a handful of images and then, mm-hmm. you Well, know. and you can you can see uh, the frame rate change as it approaches the surface. Um, yes. They go into a high frame mm-hmm. rate mode. Um, but the contact period is like one or two frames. So I'm thinking the even the high frame rate uh, portion is all you know, a, a frame every every couple of seconds, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, probably. Yeah, because because once it contacts the surface, it was blasting the nitrogen gas for, uh, mm-hmm. you know, five seconds or so, and you just see though, like the second it touches, boom, it's already backing away, and so that's kind of consistent with you know a frame every five seconds or so. Yeah, but there certainly is a heck of a lot of debris kicked up, whether or not it's moving quickly or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, that's that is a, a heck of a lot of debris, and the the more I watch it, the more I'm surprised. I mean, it really looks like. Uh, screen full of static at one point there's just dust and rocks everywhere and one thing also to note that too is that um you were talking about how right it was uh designed for a lot of different conditions right in terms of how the regolith was but also with the surface they were expecting a much smoother surface either way and mm-hmm. so they got kind of like you know first uh you know Hayabusa 2 with Ryugu saw you know how bouldery it was and then you know Osiris Rex sees with uh Bennu how bouldery you know it is and it's just kind of like ah crap and so that made the sampling so much harder i think it was i mean they went from basically something like the size of a basketball uh, a court maybe uh you know uh, that they wanted to sample in or some kind of much larger you know region is kind of what they designed it for and then they had to basically i think they were calling it um pinpoint tag sam or something or tag or something like that like they had to or bullseye tag or something like that but ultimately they had to kind of now you know narrow it down to something that was maybe just uh i think they kept using um number of like cars in a parking lot sort of so it's like maybe like a mm. six six by two in terms of you know cars parked you know regular mid-sized uh, vehicles but they were able to use uh basically um uh feature tracking on the surface uh, essentially right. to be able to get it much more accurately and did you guys watch it live i guess that's something else kind of worth no i no, I, I, uh, I intended to tune in but i was um i had a uh an inter- not an interview i had a phone call with a with a relative scheduled two hours after uh tag mm. happened. So I was rushing around trying to get dinner uh inside of me before I had to mm-hmm. jump on this phone call. So no, I, I didn't get to watch it live. Did you? Did either of you see? Uh nope. To be honest, I just kind of forgot and then I found out afterwards. So I, yeah, I'm not the best at setting alarms. <laughs> no, well I, I was lucky uh because I had a class that basically coincided with the footage starting. And so mm. since everything's virtual, you know, at at my college, um I, I just we watched it the whole class and it was the most that's fun nice. class I ever had by far. Oh, that's but cool. um, but yeah, I just thought about that because they kept calling out what the uh, the the accuracy of their navigation uh, was, and it was kind of fluctuating between one to one and a half meters or so um, mm-hmm. as they were doing their match point bur- or getting into position for the match point burn, and then when they were moving to the surface. That's a good class. <laughs> well, I would very much like it if uh, I had a professor who's like, okay, let's let this run in the background. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. That's a cool idea. So, didn't the transmission of data? I thought that that was actually reduced because like the, the 
there was like a high gain antenna that was being occluded by a piece of boulder or something. Wasn't that what happened or maybe I'm misremembering? Because you said that it actually went up as they were approaching. Well, that was actually the data collection. But uh, as far as like, you know, transmission, mm-hmm. oh. um, I think that that was a bit reduced, right? I don't know. I mean, I know like... Yeah, so as far as it backing up after, after, like, so they had to really assess uh, everything kind of after the fact. So the day of the sampling, all they knew was that the nitrogen cans fired and that the retro rock, you know, thrusters fired. That was kind of really all they could say. Uh, you know, I mean, some other things too, but they didn't have, you know, an idea of how much was collected. They didn't have the imagery. And so, but I don't know. I didn't hear about, um, them having transmission uh, issues. It was at a high latitude, I know, the, the what's it called, Nightingale, the sampling site. I'm pretty sure it was kind of at a higher latitude on the asteroid, which admittedly is like half a kilometer in, <laughs> in size, so it's not very big, but <laughs> but I could see that then meaning that, yeah, you're, you're kind of, you know, maybe you did have the horizon uh, messing with you towards the end, because there were, yeah. again, these big boulders. There was one they... they Gave it a funny nickname, like Mount Doom or something. That yeah, was like yeah, two I'm stories right. high or something. Cause, cause yeah, right. Cause when it, that was the thing they were, you know, they would have had to call it off if they, you know, felt like the spacecraft was going to come in there unsafely. Cause you can imagine if it basically upon contact ends up, you know, hitting, I don't know, a big enough rock or something to kind of knock it off to the side a little bit. Then when it backs away, you know, then it might go and hit a, a boulder or something with, you know, one of its solar panels might contact the boulder. Because there were just so many of them around. And so it was nutty, but at least that went well. <laughs> so um, they really picked up a, a lot of material. I think right now they're estimating one to two kilograms worth of, worth of sample um, when they were, their their minimum goal was, was 60 grams. And so initially the idea was, you know, let, let's go pick this up and then um, we can, um, do some maneuvers to figure out or to estimate the mass of the sample, which that maneuver was basically to, to extend the tag SAM uh, instrument as far out as you could and then um, do a couple of spin and de-spin maneuvers and measure how much delta V uh, was or how much spin resulted from a known amount of delta V, right? That That's the... Mm-hmm. That was how they were, they were massing it, right? Yeah. It's, it's like, I love the, it's, it's just a, it's, it's F equals MA, but in rotational coordinates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead yeah. of force, you got torque. Instead of mass, you got moment of inertia. And instead of acceleration, you got the linear acceleration, you got angular acceleration. And so they, they apply the known torque. They measure the resulting acceleration. They can see how the moment of inertia has changed the spacecraft, which kind of gets you the sample mass. Yeah. It's the, it's a, uh, ice skater doing a spin, but an ice skater who has their eyes closed and has no proprioception. <laughs> and so they can <laughs> estimate where their body is by how fast they're spinning. But, uh, they actually ended up not doing that maneuver. They, they officially announced that they're going to skip it. So, so they, they haven't come right out and said how much they have. They've estimated two kilograms, but they're, um, their publicity website, like where they actually have like, uh, press releases says that they have more than the minimum 60 grams. So they're, they're very confident that they have uh, more than their minimum, but there, there's sort of a little twist going on here. Um, they're confident they have a lot, but they're not skipping the mass maneuver because they 
know that they have enough. They, it would really be a good idea to find out exactly how much you have, uh, or, or at least get, you know, a, a better measurement than the one that we're waiting for once it actually arrives on Earth. The reason they're skipping it is because the tag SAM head is leaking sample. And this, this is pretty fun. There's a lid, um, that's supposed to cover um, the aperture to the sample head and it looks like it might be jammed open it looks like there might be a slightly larger pebble than we expected holding that lid open um, and Dennis you did some digging um, looking at the actual construction of the tag SAM head do you want to tell us a little bit about that yeah sure so like you say right it, it's it's partially stuck open but uh, the way it works out and there's these great uh, you know animations that uh, you know you can find on the internet uh, kind of demonstrating uh, just how the gas kind of flows. So the gas, you know, it comes down the um, the uh, the tag sam arm. The cans are about a meter above the collector, the, the tag sam head, and then it kind of goes and diverts off to the uh, edges of the collector, and then blasts down into the regolith, and then kind of cycles back in, up, and out. And so it does this kind of like little loopy pattern, which takes the regolith um, and blasts it, you know, into and out, uh, radial out uh, relative to the uh, the center of the, the, the tag sam head. And then there's a, a mesh that kind of keeps it from, you know, continuing out too far. And then there's these little mylar flaps that keep it from kind of settling and falling back in. And so these mylar flaps are more uh, like an inner uh, ring uh, around the, uh, the the base, or I guess somewhere in the middle of the, um, the tag sam head. And so it looks like, yeah, like you're saying, something is causing the one flap on the one end at least to be partially lodged open. And so there's a, an awesome gift uh, that, you know, will be in the, the show notes and you can find it online as well, where you kind of see this little black, well, you, you see the, the, the base of the tag sam head, okay? And you just see all these particles kind of leaking out of there. Leaking particles seems to be a thing about Bennu, right? It does it naturally. It does it when we try to sample it. It just, it's all about shooting particles all over the place. Can you explain to me why they were expecting a much more uniform particle size. When you go to the beach, you see very uniform sand particles, but it's because the smaller ones get washed out to sea and the larger ones get broken up in the waves. Why, yeah. why do they think that this relatively inert lump of, uh, of rock orbiting the sun would have any mechanism that would make the particle size uniform instead of having hmm. big boulders and, uh, you know, sand size and dust size like we actually see. Why, why was that surprising? That's a great question. My understanding is I think they would just have expected um, the, the regolith to have just been kind of churned by micrometeorite impacts for, mm -hmm. you know, the last n many billion years. And so mm -hmm. similar okay. to why the, the lunar regolith, you know, that same kind of external way of just churning it until it becomes, you know, this like like a you know, a sandbox essentially, right? <laughs> okay. Okay. That makes sense. Cause the, the moon does have big boulders, but they're, you know, not covering the entire surface. You've got areas of, of fine. Okay. That makes more sense. Thank you. And so anyway, if, if you find this, this nice little image here, you could see there's basically a, a an inner, uh, dark inner ring. Um, that's the mylar flap and you can kind of see it bulge out at the kind of nine o'clock position, um, on the, the left end of the, uh, the image and so yeah it's 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 leaking out there and so i guess right the idea is you know screw measuring how much we got we got to go and <laughs> uh, collect mm -hmm. the sample asap <laughs> put it in the sample return capsule 
Oh, and sorry, something else I thought was interesting too, because I, I haven't heard them talk much about this, is that not only is the nitrogen gas uh, blowing up, you know, a lot of the regolith, so that's going to catch a lot of uh, subsurface stuff as well. But if you notice on the tag sam, tag sam head, there's these 24 uh, little discs lying mm -hmm. around the perimeter. Those are... Um, those are little uh, contact pads, so they're metal Velcro, and those are specifically to just catch whatever like lunar uh, surface material there is. Because after all, when you like observe, you know, Osiris Rex, you know, remotely, you're seeing basically the the surface material. And so, based on all the spectra and everything that they have, they wanted something that they could directly compare, as opposed to the subsurface regolith, which is going to be the bulk of the stuff that got blasted up by the nitrogen. So I thought that was interesting, these little mel uh, metal Velcro pads that are just, you know, directly collecting whatever they just hit on the surface. Okay, yeah, because I was wondering what those were. I thought they were like vents of some sort. It's hard to, it's mm. hard to tell in the image. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, it's fun how inscrutable uh, some of these images are until you actually learn what's there. And then all of a sudden, oh, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I can see this feature and that feature. <laughs> so anyway, you know, we've, we've got this little uh, flap open. And um, there's a wonderful GIF. It'll be in the show notes, but it was originally put out on their uh, on the Osiris Rex team's uh, Twitter page. And um, they brought Tag Sam up uh, closer to the bus, closer to the body, so they can image it. That's part of um, their post sample collection methodology. And so um, when it's in that position, they can actually look at the the side of the head that was touching the, the asteroid. And you can see um, bits of, uh, of material flying away and just being, you know, very chaotic because it's uh, a, a microgravity, no atmosphere environment. But um, right now they're estimating that they lost about 10 grams worth of material. Hmm. And uh, they were careful to point out that this is not uh, expected to be a steady state loss. It's not that they're losing 10 grams every hour or something like that. Mm -hmm. They think it was mostly a large singular loss event when they were, you know, moving the head around so that they could do their photography. But in any event, they, they would like to jostle this as, as little as possible and certainly sticking the arm out and, um, doing attitude changes <laughs> seems like mm -hmm. uh, a, a fantastic way to fling material away from your sample container. So, uh, right. They're, they're not skipping this because they are confident they have enough. They're skipping it because they don't want to lose any more. Um, so they're going to go straight to the sample transfer, uh, phase of the mission, um, where they're actually locking this into the, the return capsule. Um, and, there may be issues with loose particles causing the door to not be able to close or the lid, I guess, um, on the, on the sample return canister. But from what they've seen, uh, Dante Loretta did this, um, nice little analysis video where he walked us through the tag video. So they, they've been careful to say that, yeah, the, the particle sizes that we've seen in, in images don't look like they'd be large enough to cause an issue, but you know, who knows? We, we may be in for some, uh, some remote, uh, troubleshooting, which is, you know, off nominal, but still always fun to watch. Uh, as an armchair uh, spectator mm -hmm. who doesn't actually have to <laughs> come up with solutions for these problems. Um, so, so you know, we, we hope and we wish them the best of luck, but if they wind up having to do some 
creative problem solving, that will be fun to to see the result of as well. So that's the immediate future. Dennis, What what's the long-term future look like for OSIRIS-REx? Well, we got a little bit of time, but uh, ultimately the goal is in 2023 for the, uh, the sample to actually make it back to Earth and uh, to drop it off uh, somewhere in Utah, where it's nice and flat and easy to recover samples, relatively speaking. <laughs> and so... Yeah. But um, uh, if, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you might remember we, we had once spoke uh, with um, a, a mission operations system engineer at Lockheed, uh, Richard Witherspoon. And so if you want to check out that interview, uh, it's episode 186. And so that was a really um, fun, you know, conversation that we had with him. And, you know, I really looking forward to kind of uh, listening to it again um, now that we've actually done the sampling and we can kind of see, you know, 2020, uh, you know, how it worked. Because he did a great description uh you know uh, we did a lot of talk about you know tag sam and the the witness plates and how kind of you know from the the lockheed engineering side how how this uh, mission was basically you know going to do its sampling and return okay let's do the usual three short and sweets all right first up falcon 9 core sets a record with the starlink launch as spacex successfully launched its 18th mission of the year booster b1051 became the first falcon 9 core so far to log four flights in a single calendar year and only the second so far to log a sixth overall flight Uh, b1051 had launched the historic demo one crew dragon to station earlier this year the flight resulted in 2020 tying 2017 as SpaceX's second most flown year to date, with only four more missions needed to beat its all-time record in 2018. This year's 18 missions have been launched on only eight Falcon 9 cores, as mm. SpaceX continues to lead the industry in reusability. So the next one up, uh, China reveals plans for a number of space projects. China Aerospace Science and Industry Corporation, or KSIC, a large state-owned enterprise, laid out a number of new commercial space plans at a recent conference. China aims to double the number of Kuaizhou smallsat rockets by 2023 and aspires to lead the world in solid rocket technology by 2025. KSIC will also test a two-stage-to-orbit space plane system called Tongyun with both stages consisting of planes. Other plans include an 80-satellite LEO narrowband Internet of Things constellation named Xingyun as well as a LEO broadband constellation called Hongyun. So, the Internet of Things I don't know how I feel about that, at least when it comes to everything. But a lot going on there. And finally, GHG Sat detects smallest methane emission ever from orbit. Shortly after its launch in September aboard a Vega rocket, the methane sensing small sat GHG Sat C1, aka Iris, recorded its first measurement from a known oil and gas facility in Turkmenistan. With the capability of measuring methane emissions from point sources with 100 times greater sensitivity and 100 times greater spatial resolution, the satellite operator then tasked IRIS to observe a controlled methane release from a test site in Alberta, Canada. By successfully measuring the 260 kilograms of methane per hour, the satellite has set the record for the smallest methane emission ever detected from orbit. That's pretty wild to think like, all right, let's open this valve. Okay, are you looking from <laughs> from orbit? Mm-hmm. All right, yeah, you detected it? Good. <laughs> Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. 
questions, comments, and correction burns. One small correction from two people. Yeah, I thought for sure a million people were gonna were gonna end up pointing this out. But thanks to Chris Hoffman and Ben Hallert uh, for writing in. Uh, last week I talked about Firefly having uh, a fire when they were disassembling that uh, mobile launch tower. Um, that took that fire took place at Vandenberg. I said wallops. Obviously, <laughs> mm. Firefly does not have Firefly does not have a launch complex at wallops. I I have it, it was written into the show notes. It wasn't like I read <laughs> read one and said the other. I just I totally wrote it up wrong. I I don't know how I did that, but thank you. I, yeah, I think I might have primed you because I made the little joke about Rocket Lab won't obviously be flying out of New Zealand with wallops yeah. coming online, and so that so I'll, I'll share I'll share that with you, Ben. <laughs> oh yeah, and there was there was also a a, a self burn, I guess uh, we'll call it, <laughs> where um uh, you might have noticed uh, when I talked about the this week in spaceflight, um I eventually used the correct uh, language, but I initially referred to uh, stereo. A is stereo above um, as, as opposed to stereo ahead. So if you recall, right, stereo, the two spacecraft, one is in a orbit uh, in front of the Earth, the one is in a trailing orbit behind the Earth, and then they actually drift relative to the Earth during the, the whole time. But ultimately, it's ahead and behind A and B, not above and behind, which is just mixing, you know, pairs hey. of words. So. Above, above and below also makes sense, right? I <laughs> so like, I, I, I was like, huh, that's that's interesting. That that's the way that they mm-hmm. they called that. <laughs> I mean, how much do those words really mean anyway when you're talking about things in space? But yeah, it's a, it's a backronym anyway. So this week in space flight history, um, we got six or seven winners. Uh, so quite a few. Uh, this was a good clue. Like a nice easy clue, although I guess last week's was. Easy I knew as well, we were but... going to get a lot of winners because you said this one's going to be harder. And when you, <laughs> when yeah, we, I jinxed it. When didn't we I? say that, uh, our listeners totally rise to the occasion and tend to crush it. <laughs> so we have Ben Hallert, Cy Kyle, Deskin Miller, the Greek, Jason Friesen, and as they're calling themselves, Team Vetemark. So mm-hmm. there you go. A nice good German word. And we'll be talking a lot about Germany this one. The event was on the 30th of October 1985, and it was the launch of the eight-person shuttle crew of STS-61A. So this was the largest crew to date. So I guess we're just going to get the clue out of the way. So the clue was room for one more. As I'm sure everyone knows, a shuttle normally carries like seven people, but this one was with eight. So they had to make room for an eighth person. And I guess, yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about why that was. This mission was the ninth and the last successful flight of Challenger. So, uh, yeah, this was uh, in 1985 in Challenger, I believe. The Challenger accident happened in 1986. So that was, um, so yes, second to last. Um, and this mission, the other name for it is actually D1, which stands for Deutschland 1. So it's called STS-61A, but you can also call it Deutschland 1, or at least I guess that's what, you know, the Germans call it, the German Space Agency. So this was actually mostly funded and carried out by West Germany. And the scientific operations were uh, conducted from uh, the German Space Operations Center, which is in a town I cannot pronounce. It's like Oberpfaffenhofen, which I'm sure means something. So there were 75 experiments being carried out on Space Lab. So this is a Space Lab mission, which I guess is not surprising since uh, that was, you know, funded by a consortium of European countries. Um, and mostly these were microgravity experiments. So this was a heavy, like big microgravity mission. There was a whole lot of stuff that they had done, kind of stuff that you would, you know, 
probably predicts things having to do with, you know, growing plants and things like that. But the strangest experiment of all was something called the vestibular sled. And I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but basically in the space lab, they put a little sled on rails, I guess kind of like bolted to the floor or whatever you want to call it. And they put an astronaut in that sled and they kind of moved it back and forth to just get an idea of how the human vestibular system worked in zero G or actually microgravity rather. And this was to uh, help us understand uh, how the human vestibular system, you know, like adapts to microgravity. So they had two crews that were actually divided so that they could work 24 hours a day. And again, eight people on this mission. And so you kind of get an idea as to why, because they had a pretty heavy workload. They were actually like able to achieve 95% of their objectives. Now, one thing that was um, said by Ernst Messerschmitt of the German Space Agency, he had said that there was a small leak that they had to repair. And if not, then they would have to come back within two days. He didn't specify where, but I'm assuming it's in Space Lab and not on the shuttle itself. I've never heard of that happening on shuttle. I'm assuming it's just a space lab type leak. And it might have just been with some kind of an experiment and not the actual module itself. But they did fix it. And so they were able to proceed. Another big mission was actually something called GLOMER, which is uh, the Global Low Orbiting Message Relay Satellite. Um, And this was released from what's called a getaway special canister. Have we talked about these before? This is mm-hmm. new to me. I don't think... Okay, we have... I. We've talked about them ad nauseum. Really? Okay, you say ad nauseum. I don't recall ever talking about them once, but that's the how last bad my memory time I is. I talked about a shuttle uh, mm-hmm. that had a few getaway specials, but the thing was that they tied the acronym to like a something bigger. Like, you know... Some, mm-hmm. some, yeah, there is a different acronym. I... Some pallet truss or something or other, and so it was... It was a very okay. It was a double combo, super combo acronym. Yeah, <laughs> somehow this escaped my attention then because uh, I can't say that I'm too familiar with the uh, the getaway specials or even why they're called like getaway special because that's such a weird thing to call them. They are you know these canisters, so why not call them I don't know scientific payload canisters or something like that and give <laughs> sure. that a bad acronym like you know they normally do. I, th- I think getaway special is is really pleasing to me because they're referencing. Which airline was it? There, there's an airline. I think it might be Southwest. They've got a getaway special ticket that was like like really popular. Um, okay, I can see the connection. It, yeah, that, back yeah. in the the 70s and 80s, um, and so it was this low cost standardized experiment uh, canister that you know anybody could or m- many more people could afford access to, and it was sort of the um, uh, the the CubeSat experiment of its day. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, I didn't know anything about those types of flights. <laughs> Colin says, uh, cheap flights to Leo, no baggage, carry-on only, limited yeah. time. <laughs> These actually were pretty cheap. I, I mean, you could do an experiment for less than $10,000, I believe. So that's that's pretty good for, you know, like anything that you want to put on shuttle. Mm. So, uh, yeah, they were definitely like getaway specials. Um, it's probably... <laughs> they just stick them in the payload bay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's probably flights on Delta that actually do cost more. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, so um, that particular satellite called Glomer was actually developed by DARPA. It was for two-way digital satellite communication uh, for under $1 million. And I guess at the time, you know, that was a pretty big deal. Um, and for under $1 million, that's pretty cheap. And it was part of something called CheapSat, which I believe we have mentioned that before. You know, there's just like all these satellites that were being developed for low cost. Mm. So that was one of them. So yeah, getting back to the extra person, this is the first shuttle to carry eight people. And so as to why that was, it's kind of an interesting story. Um, I don't know all the details, but basically there were some German astronauts who were promised a seat and then somebody had to get bumped because there was another astronaut from the Netherlands whose name is Vubo Ockels, I think. I'm not sure how to pronounce this name too. Um, it's W-U-B-B-O, like Wubba, but I'm sure it's pronounced like Vubo. A seat was actually promised to him 
and so it was going to be one of the two German astronauts that were going to be bumped, but they had actually looked at the shuttle and they thought that they could fit another seat in the mid-deck. And so they actually brought that to NASA's attention and they convinced them. And so that's what happened. And like, if you look at the three seats down on the mid-deck, like you have three of them there, and what they did was they put the eighth seat right in front of seat number five. And so it kind of sits a little bit more forward, but they made the room. There's one other interesting fact that Dennis, you had pointed out, this was just kind of serendipitous, that this is not the only time that eight people have flown on shuttle, but this is the only time that they had flown to and from Earth on shuttle. So um, a couple of years later aboard Mir, the shuttle was bringing back a couple of cosmonauts. And so they needed to make some extra room. But these cosmonauts were in some other kind of a harnessed. Uh, I don't think that they had seats. They actually had to lay supine um, mm. in some oh, kind wow. of a special rig. So yeah, they had to come back in a different orientation. Um, but that too was added to the mid-deck. So that was a very interesting catch that they, you know, have flown eight people. Well, this was the first time, but then they did do it one other time. So they had three payload specialists, which I believe is more than the normal amount uh, because you have the other crew aboard. And this was the first mission to ever carry a Dutch astronaut. So that's another superlative there for you. He was not the first person to fly on a shuttle mission who was actually born in the Netherlands. That was someone else, but he's the first Dutch citizen, I suppose, is the actual distinction to make there. That is Challenger with STS-61A. There's like six or seven other 61s I can't remember how the naming conventions go, but uh, this oh. is just one of many. Yeah, so it's 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 the dumbest. I'm sorry. It is so <laughs> convoluted because the first digit is the last digit of the year in the 80s. So it was 86. The one means it flew out of the Cape as opposed to Vandenberg, which would have been a two. And since no shuttles ever flew out of Vandenberg, they're all one afterwards. And and mm. I'm not looking this up. Like I just remember getting uh, like learning about this and just being amazed and then it's sequentially a b c d and all that except it's fiscal year mm. <laughs> so it might not even be the right calendar year even with this ridiculous setup <laughs> so you could be i don't know this like this might have been december 95 or something right or like you know november mm. and it could be a a six one and so it's just it's it's one hell of a system and then yeah after challenger they scrapped it well you're right because in, in this case right you said this first is the year right so it's 1980 six but this is 1985 when it launched right so i guess october of 85 is the is beginning part of the fiscal year fiscal year yeah because uh the fiscal year usually begins on the first of october right for the government that's where it all begins and ends mm. i think yeah what a system i, I want to know who came up with that. <laughs> i shouldn't be some hater, government bureaucrat that's, yeah <laughs> that's that is something special i think <laughs> yep that's scs 61a so uh yeah we got an interesting clue for next week and a date range yeah 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 gonna gonna keep doing the date ranges because uh apparently it's more confusing than i anticipated all right so next week is the 3rd through the 9th of November. Our clue is for next week in 1967, fiber optics trained on the ringed planet. So fiber optics, Saturn, right? That's what I'm guessing. They all got rings, all the gas giants. <laughs> yeah, technically they all do, but no one thinks of the other one. So it, yeah. yeah. They weren't even discovered in the 60s at that point. So Fiber optics trained on the ring planet. Okay, so that's next week on the 3rd through the 9th in 1967. And if you think you know what that's in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week, SF, and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. We just got one launch, and that is all. So uh, our one launch of the week... Uh is uh, on October 28th, and this is the Electron uh, mission, that uh, the In Focus mission uh, is the name of it. 
And so uh, if, if you recall, this will be uh, uh, Electron's 15th flight, and it'll be taking the CESAT-2B Earth Imaging Microsatellite for Canon, along with nine SuperDove Earth Imaging Nanosats for Planet. And so it's in focus because, you know, referring to the fact that these are, you know, Earth observation payloads. And so, again, the launch is on October 28th uh, with a window from 2114 to 2203 UTC, or for people on the east coast of the U.S., that's 514 to 603 p.m., and and it will be a uh, electron launch, as all previous ones have been, uh, out of Launch Complex 1 in uh, Mahia Peninsula, New Zealand. Okay, so that is your upcoming spaceflight event. Just the one. All right, time to do over the show. And we would like to thank Ron Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links for Google podcasts on posts. You can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's all, and we'll see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. See you.